Well, good morning, everybody. I'll pray for us this morning before we jump into our study in Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. This is our second week in this. Father, thank you for, Lord, this awesome opportunity to revel in the glorious future that we have waiting for us. And it's not far away. Lord, we know that we're going to go up to meet you in the air and experience a beam of seat judgment in heaven, the judgment of rewards, and then we come back down with you and we rule and reign with you on a beautiful, reformed, remade earth in perfect righteousness. Something is opposite to what we are experiencing now. Where this world system is evil, in the millennium it'll be a perfect righteousness. It'll be ruled by Jesus. And instead of an evil influence, it'll be a good influence. So we thank you for the promise of this and we look forward to being a part of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So remember, we have the church age and then we have the seven-year tribulation and then we have the after the tribulation, the thousand-year millennial reign. And that's the three different time periods. The church age finishes at the rapture. So the church goes up to meet Christ in the air. We stay with Christ in heaven, but all the unbelievers, they go into the tribulation period and they have to face the many judgments that God sends down. And then the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews pass through or are accepted into the millennial kingdom. And so at the start of the millennial kingdom, all the people are believers, yeah. So at the start of the millennial reign, everyone who lived and believed in the tribulation will go into the millennial kingdom and they will be mortal. They will be able to have kids. But their kids, some of their kids will not choose to believe because they have a sinful nature. It's still a free choice. And they will rebel at the end of the millennial reign when Satan is released and the final war. But also in the millennial reign, we have three other groups of people, all with resurrected bodies. We have the church, that's us, in our resurrected bodies. We have the resurrected Old Testament believers, and we have the resurrected tribulation believers. So all the people who have died in the tribulation believing, all the people who have died in the Old Testament believing, and all the church, those who have died and those who are raptured, will all be there in their glorified bodies, living alongside the people from the tribulation who believed and were accepted into the millennial reign. So that's basically what's going to happen. At the end, Satan's released. There's a number of people like the sand on the seashore who rebel against God. Their hearts were never soft towards God, even with all this evidence, even with the gospel being clearly preached that pride will stop them from asking for God's forgiveness. And they will, when Satan is released, finally have an opportunity to choose against God and they will rebel against God and God will destroy them. And then there's the great white throne judgment and then there's the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity with the Lord. So we're looking forward to that as well. Now, you know, Revelation chapter 20 talks about the millennial reign, but it doesn't actually tell us all that much about it. There's only 
as far as I can see, two main things that it tells us that we can't find in other parts of the scripture. And that is how long it's going to be, a thousand years, and the fact that Satan will be locked up for that thousand years and then released for the final battle. So all the other details are clearly laid out in many references throughout the Old Testament prophetic books. There are over a hundred passages scattered throughout all the Bible which describe the millennial reign of Christ. And another commentator said, all in all, there are more than 400 verses in more than 20 different passages in the Old Testament which deal with this time when Jesus Christ would rule and reign personally over planet Earth. So there's a massive amount of information about the millennial reign in the Bible. So it's a very important thing. So I'm just going to read two and we'll get some of the main points of what it's going to be like living in this thousand-year millennium with Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning with him. So the first one is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. And it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, remember that talks about end times, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a change in geography. Jerusalem will be the highest point. And it will be where people will come to, to worship. It says, all nations will come to Jerusalem, to the Lord's house, to Jerusalem, to the temple there, the new temple that will be built. Verse 3 in Isaiah, Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. So, people are there in this kingdom, and they are going year by year at the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe, to go and worship. So, there's this pilgrimage every year. I suppose you can go other times as well. And it also says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the law, Jesus is going to rule and reign from where? Jerusalem, from Zion, yeah. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So, Israel will be the superpower for 1,000 years, for the entire millennium. So, there will be one nation ruling the others, and that will be Jesus ruling through the nation of Israel. And the next one I want to go to is Isaiah 11, 1-10. And it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So, in the original, it's picturing a stump. And then the branch is like a shoot. And so you picture an old dead stump, and then out of this old dead stump comes a a fresh green shoot. And it's a picture of Jesus because the Davidic line of kings was long gone. There had been no king on the throne in Israel for a long time. But Jesus will come forth from the stem of Jesse, 
He's a descendant of David. And it says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So, here we have Jesus being the righteous judge on the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. So not only does he bring righteousness and justice for the poor, but he also punishes the wicked. With the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. It's a picture of capital punishment, you know. It says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So again, like in Psalm 2, in verse 4 it says, With a rod, okay? Justice and righteousness will be enforced. Capital punishment will be swift and certain. And capital punishment is an important thing which has been neglected in today's society. Someone said that the reason that people don't like capital punishment and they protest against it is because it's kind of like they're defending their own conscience because they understand that they too deserve to die because they're also sinners. Verse 6 in Isaiah, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. So how has the relationship between man and animals changed? There's no more fear of man. Back in Genesis, God put the fear of man into the animals because God said that you can eat meat. And so to protect the animals from all being wiped out, God made them scared of man, but now it's going to change. They won't be scared of man anymore. In verse 7 it says, A cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. So the diet of the animals is now precursed, isn't it? It's back to the Garden of Eden. The animals will be eating a vegetarian diet. And verse 8, The nursing child shall play by the copper's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. There's nothing dangerous anymore. Remember in the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect, nothing was harmful. Adam and Eve didn't throw poisonous snakes back then, or poisonous spiders or whatever. It'll be the same in the millennium. No more poisonous snakes. No more poisonous spiders. No more venomous jellyfish. All those types of things will be gone. Everything will be safe. And then it says at the end of verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is really important. This is the best part about it. All right. All those other things are like environmental, but this is like the world system. Okay. It's a new world system. This is another confirmation that the evil Babylon world system will be replaced by a righteous world system during the millennial reign. Think about this, right? No more bad or worldly magazines. You turn the TV on. And there's no more bad TV shows. 
You turn the radio on and there's only Christian music. You go to the internet and there's no bad websites. Can you imagine a world like that? Everything is going to be pointing to Jesus. It's going to be a world where Philippians 4.8 is enforced. Only those things which are noble, just, pure, lovely, honourable and of good report will be allowed. The world during the millennium will be shaped by righteousness, not evil. Our world system right now is influencing us for evil, but the world system in the millennium will be influencing for good. The stuff that we see on TV that is designed to put into us a love of money and a love of what money can buy and also what pleases the eye, you know, lust and sex, it won't be there anymore. It will be replaced with beautiful things that point us to God. Remember the word cosmos that we read as world, like God so loved the world, uh, cosmos. It's the root word for the word cosmetics. And cosmetics means to like paint a picture to create a certain image. So, you know, women put makeup on to create a certain image. Yeah. Well, Satan creates or paints a world that is attractive to our sinful nature. Because cosmetic, you know, you want to be attractive, yeah? Well, God is going to paint or create a world that is attractive to our new nature. That's how I was thinking about it. So instead of the world system being attractive to our sinful nature, the world system will be attractive to our new nature. It's going to be a great place to live. And verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who will stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So again, all the Gentiles will come. His resting place will be glorious. And we'll be there too. As I said before, there's over a hundred passages scattered throughout the Bible which describe the millennial reign. I've got a massive list there of scripture references in your notes. I won't read them all out now. So let's read Revelation chapter 20 and we'll go from there. So Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. Remember, these are the people who came out of the Great Tribulation, yeah? They didn't align themselves with the Antichrist. And they lived and reigned together with Christ for a thousand years in their resurrection bodies. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the people who get their resurrection bodies before the end. They are the believers. And verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So another hint here will be priests of God and Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Second death is, of course, the great white throne judgment. The people who are a part of that are cast into the lake of fire. There's no hope for those people. 
once they've died and, and they've made their choice, then that's it. In verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So despite this perfect environment, of course we know that's our sinful nature that causes us to sin, not our environment. So there's the evidence right there. A multitude of people whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Very short rebellion. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night for ever and ever. So now there's three in the lake of fire. There's the devil, there's the false prophet, and the antichrist. And they will never leave. It's eternal. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. We'll talk more about that later. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So remember, the first death is a physical death. It's when your heart stops beating and your spirit leaves your body, spirit and soul leave your body. The second death is when you are eternally separated from God. And that separation becomes permanent and you are cast into the lake of fire. So, before we keep going in Revelation 20, I just thought it would be expedient and wise to explain the three different views on the millennium. Firstly, after just reading Revelation chapter 20, I think it's pretty obvious that it presents the fact that Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years. How many times? Do you count how many times it says a thousand years? Six times. Yes, six times. If you take it literally, and just take it as it's read, it's quite simple to understand what it's saying. However, because many Bible interpreters have rejected the idea that there will be a reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years after his second coming, this chapter has been given a huge amount of diverse interpretations, (laughs) and all designed to eliminate the thousand literal millennial reign of Jesus Christ on earth. So there's basically three viewpoints. Now, before I get into them, why do people want to eliminate or get rid of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Because they have a different method of interpretation of the scripture. They interpret scripture, especially prophecy, allegorically. And what does that mean again? We've spoken this before. An allegorical interpretation means that it can mean anything but what it literally says. It's plain, obvious meaning. Okay. So here are the three views summarized, so you can know what other people believe and why they believe it. The prefix 
So you got post-millennial, pre-millennial, and amillennial. They're the three views. It's the prefix that describes it. And what the prefix is talking about is the second coming of Christ. Does it come before? Does it come after the millennium? Or is there no millennium? Okay. So, for example, post-millennial. They're the people who say that Christ comes back after the millennium, after the thousand years. You have pre-millennial viewpoint where Christ comes back before the thousand years. That fits into what we just read. Jesus comes back in chapter 19, chapter 20, you have the thousand years. And then you have those who say there is no literal physical rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth for a thousand years, and they call that a millennial, a meaning no. Okay, no millennium. So we'll have a quick look at a millennialism, which denies that there will be any literal millennium or reign of Christ on earth. That's why it's called a millennialism. So the millennial reign of Christ is reduced to or allegorized to be a spiritual reign in the hearts of believers. And both the a-millennial and post-millennial views must interpret Revelation 20 in a non-literal or allegorical sense. And because of that, there's a multitude of variations in their interpretations because it can mean anything but the literal meaning. So people can think of all these different meanings. Now, it's important for us to know and comforting for us to know that the early church, until Augustine, almost universally believed in an earthly, historical reign of Jesus, a physical reign of Jesus, on earth for a thousand years, initiated by his return. Okay, So they, the early church, up to about three, the year 300 or so, believed that Jesus comes back and then sets up his reign on earth. There's a guy called Tyconius, and he was in the late 300s, and he was the first to influentially champion a spiritualized interpretation, an allegorical interpretation, saying that this millennium is now. So they believed that they were living in the millennium now, that there is no physical reign of Christ on earth, and that's where the whole thing of a millennialism came about. And they said it must be understood as a spiritual reign of Jesus and not a literal reign. And then his view was adopted by Augustine and then the Roman Catholic Church and then unfortunately most of the Reformation theologians. And that's why you have a lot of people believing this today because it's been handed down one generation after the other. But it wasn't like that at the start. So The most recent view is what we know as post-millennialism. It comes out of a millennialism. According to this view, the thousand years represent the triumph of the gospel in the period leading up to the second coming of Christ. And again, the return of Christ will follow or comes after the millennium. That's why it's called post-millennialism. So basically, it's an optimistic view that Christ will reign spiritually on earth through the work of the church and the preaching of the gospel. Basically, they believe that 
the whole world will get better and better until almost everyone is a believer and only then will Christ return. So I don't know how you can believe in this view because it's obvious the world is not becoming a better place and there's so many scriptures that say that the world will get worse before Jesus comes back. I've got a good quote from Hal Lindsey. Here's where we need to get some things straight. There are those who call themselves post-millennialists, dominionists, kingdom now, or more lately, preterist. All those fancy names simply mean that they don't believe that there will be a thousand-year kingdom of Jesus reigning on the earth. They believe that this is all allegorical, that most of all prophecy has been fulfilled already in 70 AD. They believe the book of Revelation almost in its entirety, was fulfilled in 70 AD. And that's when they say that God rejected his people Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He rejected them, abrogated or cancelled the unconditional promises and covenants that he made with the nation of Israel and transferred them to the church. This is a very severe theological mistake, one which is going to cause a severe judgment on these people because what they are saying basically is this. God is a liar. I don't know about them, but my God never makes an unconditional covenant or a promise that he will later break. God cannot do that. Yet this movement is sweeping through parts of the church like wildfire. End of quote. And Hal Lindsay then goes on to say that the main reason for this aberrant doctrine is a lack of sound Bible teaching and training, so people don't get the big picture and they come to these wrong conclusions. Now, we come to the third view of the millennium, and that is pre-millennialism. Why? Because the second coming of Christ comes before the millennium. It's pre-millennium. Okay? So, it's a literal, as it says in Revelation chapter 20, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ following his second coming. And there's so many passages which speak of the second coming of Christ being followed by a reign of righteousness on earth. So here are some. There's Psalm 2, Psalm 24, Psalm 72, Psalm 96. There's Isaiah 2, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, Isaiah 11 and 12, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, it's in your notes. There's about probably 30 references there. So what is clear here is that how a person interprets Revelation 20, the millennium, tells you a lot about how they interpret the Bible and also what they believe about other important issues, especially Israel. So typically, post-millennialists and a-millennialists believe in replacement theology. That is, the church has replaced Israel. They believe that because Israel rejected the Messiah, God has also rejected Israel. But we have already shown in previous sermons that God is very clear that his promises to Israel are unconditional and eternal. And, as we're going to find, many find their ultimate fulfillment in the millennium. Okay. For example, Israel has never occupied the whole land. So there's quite a few of those promises which will be ultimately and completely fully fulfilled in the millennial period. So here, I'm going to be teaching according to the pre-millennial view, because I believe it's just the most obvious interpretation of Scripture. We, we take it literally and we replace 
As we read scripture, the prophecy especially, we replace the signs and symbols with their literal meanings described elsewhere in the scriptures to get the literal meaning of the passage. Alright. Now, revision from last week. Last week we answered several questions, so let's see how much you remember. So, what will it be like during the millennium? We covered a bit of this this week too. What's it going to be like during the millennium? Yes, there will be peace, there will be no war. No violence between the animals, yep. Like the Garden of Eden restored. Jesus will be ruling and reigning through the nation of Israel, yes. Awesome. And there's more, but that's a good start. So, next question, question two. Why is Satan locked up? during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Yes, that's one of the reasons, so there can be peace on earth. Yep. Yeah, so basically, Satan is locked up during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ because he is there to deceive. In God's world, when Jesus is reigning, Jesus doesn't want Satan deceiving people. He wants his world system, not Satan's world system. And so Satan must be locked up. That's why. So you guys, you got that. It's fantastic. And how do we know that there will be mortals, that is people with natural bodies who will be able to reproduce in the millennial reign? Uh-huh. That was a good answer. I haven't thought of it before. The, the babies playing with snakes, that's good. And also, if you die at 100, you'll be considered to be cursed. And otherwise you'll live to the end. And also, one of the main reasons is all the people who go into the millennial reign are believers because at the sheep and goat judgment, all the unbelievers are removed from the earth and only believers go into the millennial reign. And at the end, you've got all these people who don't believe. So they must have been born during the millennial reign in the thousand years. Now, Will all mortal people in the millennium be believers? No. Yeah. So at the start they all will be because you have to be a believer to enter the millennium, but their children will be given free choice to choose whether or not to believe and ask God to forgive their sins. Now, why must Satan be released at the end of the thousand years? It's all about choice. Well done. Yeah, it's all about choice. I mean, you imagine being a non-Christian living in the millennial reign. It would actually be quite difficult for you because all your sinful nature desires which you are seeking to fulfill, there's nothing there to fulfill them. You have to do it all privately. You know, There's nothing on the internet. There's nothing on the TV. There's nothing on the radio. You can't buy the bad magazines, the gully magazines. It's a reign of righteousness. And so finally when Satan is released, all this time just hardening your heart against God, bang, you're out there with Satan and you're fighting against God. Finally, I can reveal my true colors. And that's what it'll be like for those people who harden the hearts against God, refuse because of their prideful, sinful nature to ask God for his forgiveness for their sins. Now, something really important from last week, what are the three enemies of my relationship with God? Yeah? Yes, the flesh, the devil, and the will system. Okay, now, how many enemies of those three, or how many of those three enemies will be present in the millennium? 
Only one, yeah. Only what? Only the flesh. Only our sinful nature. So the flesh is like a picture of our sinful nature. Another way of saying our sinful nature. Satan will be locked up and the world system will be gone. The Babylon evil world system will be gone. We'll have God's world system which will be righteous. Now, what is it about our sinful nature that causes us to reject God's plan of salvation for our lives? One word, starts with P. Pride. Yeah. I'm a good person. Why would I need God's forgiveness? How dare you call me a sinner? Now, another important question from last week that we answered last week was, how do you know if you are saved? Because it's a battle, yeah. Because you hate sin, there's a battle. You are fighting. Remember that when God gave you your new nature, he didn't take the old nature away. And that's why we have this battle. And that's why some people go, am I saved? Because i still got these old thoughts. Well, yes, you will still have those old thoughts. And you will have this struggle because now you have two completely opposing desires. And you have to choose all the time. Now, is our behavior or our choices caused by our environment or by our sinful nature? Another way of saying that, is a person who he is because of his environment or because of his being born with a sinful nature? Is it because we're born with a sinful nature? Now, how do we know? Well, think about Adam and Eve. Perfect environment, everything perfect, and they chose to rebel against God. Think about the millennium. Perfect environment. Jesus is there. They've got everything they need to encourage them to confess their sins and believe in God, asking for his forgiveness, and they refuse. So it's not the environment that causes people to rebel against God. It's their sinful nature. So the answer is not to try to create another perfect environment, but rather to be born again. You know, the counsel in this world tells us that you can't help doing all those wrong things. You can't help being angry because your mother was angry with you when you grew up. And they justify your bad behavior. It's wrong. Your bad behavior is because of your sinful nature. Your bad decisions are because of your sinful nature. If you go to Ezekiel 18, it says that an evil parent can have a son who listens or thinks about this and goes, hang on, my father was an evil person, but I choose not to be evil. Or you can have a good father and the son says, you know what, my father was a good father, but I choose to be evil. So your choices are your choices. Now, I'm just going to go back to Revelation 20 and we're going to go to the first three verses, verse by verse. So I'll just read those verses. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. So an angel coming down from heaven. Now I had a discussion with some students 
And I said, how many angels would it take to bind Satan? And they said, oh, hundreds. I said, really? Well, you know what? This angel, well, it's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't come and bind Satan. He doesn't send Michael or Gabriel or any other high-ranking angel (laughs) to bind Satan. He just sends an anonymous angel. Just any angel will do. And David Guzik says, This is a dramatic declaration that Satan is not God's opposite or equal and that God could easily stop Satan's activity at any time. Yet God allows Satan to continue because even in his evil, he indirectly serves the purposes of God. And one of those purposes, as we know from here, is that we have a choice. We choose Satan or we choose God. In the tribulation, choose Satan or choose God. Take the mark or die. Okay, if you die, you're a Christian, you go to heaven, yeah? You're choosing a different kingdom. And in verses 2 and 3, talking about Satan, it says, The angel laid hold of him, bound him, cast him, shut him up, set a seal on him. Consider that Satan tried to imprison Jesus in a tomb, but he couldn't. Here, God has no problem restraining Satan, and this incarceration is not for punishment, but for restraint. Okay, now, by implication, Satan's demonic armies are also restrained and imprisoned. It doesn't say that directly, but we imply that. So all the demons are restrained and imprisoned. Now some people ask, what kind of chain can hold the devil? I don't know. But God can fashion a chain for that exact purpose. We know that right now there are demonic spirits who are imprisoned and chained. So in Jude 6 it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in what? Everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So if God can chain angels now, then it's no problem in chaining a few more up. Satan and his armies for a thousand years during the millennium. Verse 3. That he should deceive the nations no more. So, this shows us Satan's main mode of attack. Okay? Satan is a deceiver. And what's our defense against his lies and deception? What's the only defense against his lies and deception? It's the word of God. It's the truth of the word of God. And I've got a quote from a, a commentator called Cease, S-E-I-S-S. The truth is ever against him. Therefore, falsehood is his particular recourse and instrument. But naked falsehood is only repulsive. What we know to be a lie cannot command our respect. Untruth can only gain credence and acceptance by being so disguised as to appear to be the truth. Falsehood can have no power over us until we are led to believe and conclude that it is the truth. And this deluding of men, getting them to accept and follow lies and false hopes, under the persuasion that they are accepting and following the truth, is the great work and business of Satan in every age. That's what he does. He's a father of lies. He's a father of lies. In the Gospels, Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, he said, you worship your father, and he's also 
the father of lies, something like that. So in verse 3, it says, Till the thousand years were finished. So this thousand year period is called the millennium. Good. Again, through church history, there's been three main ways of understanding the millennium. Remember that the early church until Augustine, they all believed, basically everyone prior to Augustine, they all believed in a literal, physical, thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth following his second coming, the premillennial viewpoint. So, now, I've got a quiz for us. So what I want to do here is really help us to understand what the millennium is and what it's going to be like because, guess what? This is what Christ is asking us to look forward to. This is our future, all right? This is where we rule and reign with Christ. It's where we get to enjoy the fruit or reward of our faithfulness to God in this life. The millennium is what Jesus is referring to in the parable of the talents. So Matthew 25, 20 to 21, it's a section of this parable. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you have delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter in. I will make you ruler over many things. Here is a good motivation for choosing to reject the temporary pleasures of this world and instead of that to accept rejection here and acceptance there. This is our goal. It should be what we're looking forward to or working towards. So the millennium is really important. It helps shape our understanding what the future holds for us. So, some questions. Who or what country will be the superpower of the world? In the millennium, yes. Yeah. So, in the, there's all these questions about the millennium. So, who or what country will be the superpower of the world? Israel, yep. What will be the capital or center of government? Jerusalem, yep. So the center of Israel will be the mountain of the Lord's house, the temple mount, which will be the capital of the government of the Messiah. All nations shall flow to the capital of Jesus' government. And you can look up Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. The third question is, during the millennium, which citizens of the earth will outwardly acknowledge and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? All of them, yeah, because I have to. <laughs> It's going to be a time of perfectly administrated, enforced righteousness on the earth. And you can read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and also Psalm 2. Now, how big will Israel's armies be during the millennium? <laughs> Very good. There won't be any army, navy, or air force anywhere in the world. Why? During the millennium, there will be no war. Yes, there will be conflicts between nations and individuals, or arguments, but they will be justly and decisively resolved by the Messiah and those who reign with him. That's our job. 
Okay? Ruling and reigning with him. Dealing with these conflicts between the nations and stuff like that. So war and armed conflict will not be there. It will not be tolerated. And also Amos chapter 9 verse 11 15 says, In the millennium there will be blessing and security for the nation of Israel. No one will attack them. The fifth question, because the reign of the Messiah will be perfect with perfect justice and a perfect environment, does it mean that all people will choose to be saved or forgiven of their sins? So I'll say that again. Because the reign of the Messiah will be perfect with perfect justice and a perfect environment, does it mean that all people will choose to be saved or forgiven of their sins? Ah, no. Because it's not the reign of the Messiah itself that will change the heart of man. It's not the environment. Citizens of earth will still need to trust in Jesus and his work on their behalf for their personal salvation during the millennium. They will have to humble themselves, confess their sin and ask for forgiveness. It's the same as now. The next question is question six. How do we know that salvation is not an automatic thing in the millennium? That, you know, because Jesus is there and everyone's just going to choose him. Yep, because when Satan is released, well, things will look great on the outside, but when Satan is released, all the people who haven't humbled their hearts and aren't willingly following God's rules in this enforced righteousness in the millennium, they will be given a choice and they will choose to follow Satan. They will choose to love their sin more than God. In their hearts, they are still in rebellion against God and Satan being released at the end of the thousand years, finally gives them a chance to express the hatred of God by rebelling against God. I find that hard to imagine, but it's true. Our sinful nature is that deceptive, that powerful. Question seven. How will animals and people relate to each other during the millennium? There's no fear. A little child will be able to lead a wolf or a leopard or a young lion or a bear. There'll be no poisonous snakes. Now remember, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 to 3, the Lord gave Noah and all mankind after him the permission to eat meat. At the same time, the Lord put the dread of man in animals so they would not be effortless prey for humans. The humans just wipe them out if they just kill anything. But now it takes work to catch the animals and kill them. So animals will no longer have an inbuilt fear of man. That's Isaiah 11, 6 to 9. Now, what will animals eat during the millennium? Plants, yeah, vegetarian diet, Isaiah 11, verse 7. Now, what role will King David have in the millennium? Well, I haven't talked about this yet, but during the millennium, King David will have a prominent place in the millennial earth. He'll be ruling over Israel. So Jesus is the king of all, and David will be a prince under Jesus. And you can read, Isaiah 55, verses 3 to 5, Jeremiah 34 to 11, Ezekiel 34, 23 to 31, Ezekiel 37, 21 and 28, and Isaiah chapter 3, verse 5. They all tell us that David will be a prince in this new kingdom. Not the king, but a prince. Okay. Jesus is the king. Next question, question 10. What will characterize the lives of all believers in the millennium? Righteousness, yeah. Purity and devotion of God. A time of purity and devotion to God. Zechariah 13, 1-9. Now, that's in contrast to 
the state of today's church where there's a lot of apostasy and a lot of unbelief. In the millennium, there's going to be a time of purity and devotion to God. So the believers will be very pure in heart. Again, a lovely time to be a Christian, a lovely time to be a believer. 11. Will there be temple sacrifices during the millennium? Mm, interesting. Yes, there will. There will be a rebuilt temple and restored temple service on the earth as a memorial of God's work in the past. And you can read Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, Ezekiel 37, 26 to 28, Amos 9, 11, and Ezekiel 20, 39 to 44. Why are there sacrifices still? Well, people still need to know and be reminded of just how evil, bad, and serious sin really is. They will need to be reminded that without the shedding of blood, Jesus' blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22-26 Remember that Jesus will still have his scars in this new millennium. Okay, In his physical glorified body, he will still have the scars of the crucifixion. Now, last question. What will the resurrected Old Testament saints, tribulation saints and the church be doing during the millennium? Two main words. One starts with K, one starts with P. We will be kings and priests in the millennium. Yes. Saints in their resurrected state will be given responsibility in the millennial earth according to their faithful service now while they were alive on earth in their mortal bodies. And there's lots of references for that. There's Luke 19 verses 11 to 27, Revelation 24 to 6 and, and others. Oh, and especially 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. We will be ruling and reigning with Christ, with the level of our service, depending on our faithfulness to our relationship with God here and now. So remember, during the tribulation, we'll be in heaven going through the Bema Seat judgment, our own judgment of rewards, and then we'll come back and enjoy our reward, ruling and reigning with Christ. Just going to finish off with this. Why is the millennium so important? And I got these ideas from David Guzik's commentary. The millennium is important because it will demonstrate Jesus' victory and worthiness to rule the nations. Secondly, the millennium is important because it reveals the depths of man's rebellious nature in a perfect environment. Again, we've said this before, but some people seem to believe that man is basically good and deep down he really wants God's righteous rule. Many believe that man is really innocent, corrupted only by a bad environment. The millennium will show this to be false. The third reason the millennium is important is because it will display the internal depravity of Satan, who continues his evil as soon as he is released from his incarceration. So those evil angels, they cannot repent, they cannot change. Which is another reason why sinful people who choose to reject God must be locked up for eternity because they will never change either. You've made your choice. There's no reformation for them. There's no change for them. And the last reason is the millennium is important because it will show the invulnerability and invincibility of the city of God and God's new order. So God is in control. God is in charge. And we're living in this world and we're being persecuted, we're 
the ones who were being hounded and you know told what to do, laughed at, jeered at, guess what? There's a time coming when the tables will be turned. We were the ones in charge. So I'm going to finish with a quote from Spurgeon. It says, Let us rejoice that Scripture is so clear and so explicit upon this great doctrine of the future triumph of Christ over the whole world. We believe that the Jews will be converted and that they will be restored to their own land. We believe that Jerusalem will be the central metropolis of Christ's kingdom. We also believe that all the nations shall walk in the light of the glorious city which shall be built at Jerusalem. We expect that the glory which shall have its centre there shall spread over the whole world, covering it as with a sea of holiness, happiness and delight. For this we look with joyful expectation. So, that's the millennium. That's why we're so looking forward to this. And that's why God has put so much information about the millennial reign in the scriptures because it's something we need to be looking forward to. We don't just die and go to heaven. We have a future. We have something to do. And if you want to be part of it, you need to work at it now by trusting God, living for him. So you can have a, as Paul said, oh, who said it, a better resurrection. Yeah. So next week, we're going to look at the two resurrections and we're also going to look at the different places that you go when you die. There's different abodes of the dead and and as well as continuing through uh, Revelation 20. So Father, thank you for all the things that you have done. Lord, we thank you for your promises. Lord, we look forward to this time when everything is reversed. Lord, instead of the godly being persecuted, it'll be the wicked being persecuted. Instead of us living in a world which is grievous to our new nature, we'll be living in a world which will bless our new nature. Lord, it's going to be an awesome time. And I'm looking forward to hearing that, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many cities or many things. So I just pray that you help us to realize that this is our future. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Ruling in his kingdom, we're going to be the ones in charge. We're going to be victorious. Lord, this temporary persecution, this temporary world system is soon going to go, and we look forward to that, Father. We thank you for these promises. We thank you for this bright future that we have. It's what gives us hope. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.